All right, those are really helpful. So let's talk about how to understand Old Testament narrative. Have you ever read a story in the Bible and wondered what you're supposed to learn? There's all kinds of stories throughout the Old Testament. Uh, There are many ways that we look at them. There are many things that you've probably heard from Old Testament stories that you scratch your head and say, is that what I was supposed to learn? And that's probably a good response. We'll talk about that. Some of the stories in the Old Testament seem very strange to modern ears. Sometimes it's really easy to focus on the wrong things in those stories and come up with moral lessons that don't really fit with what God is intending to teach us. So we need to learn how to read these Old Testament stories careful and well. We've talked about this. It was about two years ago we went through a lesson like this. Um, We're reminding you of some of these things as we begin 2 Samuel tonight. We need to learn how to read these well. And I want to help provide you with a couple of specific things. Now, you have a handout. Does anybody still need a handout? I have a few extras. It's a small half page. Okay, great. You guys all have those. I am going to move through these quickly. Um, You may not fill everything in, but it's just supposed to help keep us together. And the principles on the back side are the main things that will be your takeaway for this evening. I want to recommend as well, this is where I have been helped. I am only sharing with you what I have learned. A lot of help from this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It has a chapter on Old Testament narrative that I've used to help me as I think through Old Testament narrative stories. um, And I'm sharing with you tonight, all right? The single most common type of literature in the Bible is a narrative or a story. So learning these principles will serve us very well, not just here, but really whenever we come across that type of literature when we read. Over 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. And the Old Testament makes up almost, I think, two-thirds of our Bible. Now, biblical narratives are purposely chosen stories retelling specific historic events from the past that are intended to give meaning and direction for people in the present. And we want to talk about how do we learn those lessons, all right? It's been immensely helpful for me, for instance, to recognize that 1st and 2nd Samuel is considered part of the former prophets in how the Hebrews looked at the Bible. And here's how that's helpful. They're a collection of carefully chosen stories. The editor, the author, has put them together for a reason. He's included some things and left other things out. The fact that they are in the former prophets mean that they function like a sermon. They're telling us something about God and the way that he deals with his people, sinners in particular. The story being told is not so much our story as it is God's story. And because It becomes ours as he writes it to us, as we see what he is doing. Remember when we went through 1 Samuel, I titled every sermon, the God who, and then we'd fill in the blank each week. Because I wanted to keep in front of us that this, the Old Testament, is not about us primarily. It's about what God is doing in the lives of his people. And that's where the encouragement comes from. Now, all narratives have three basic parts. Again, this should be a reminder for us. Character. Plot and plot resolution. This means there will always be some kind of conflict or tension that needs resolving. So we'll try to pick as we go each week a section. Usually in the Old Testament we pick a little bit larger section. And it's part of a story with a story arc. All those things we know that are included in a story as we've, we've just been talking about. 
It means that in each passage, you want to be asking, what is the conflict that needs resolution and how will God bring that resolution about? If you can answer that question, you'll be well underway to understanding the point of the passage better. To illustrate this, let me remind us of where we were. When we left 1 Samuel, David was not on the throne yet. The king that the people had chosen for themselves, as we just saw, saw was Saul. He'd finally come to ruin because of his arrogant disobedience. God showed them, be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it, right? When you reject me and choose your own way, the consequences are disastrous. And that's what Saul's life showed. But how will God fulfill his promises to his people by providing to them the leader that they really need? That question has been left unanswered. Chapter 1 of 2 Samuel that will be in next week introduces a rather unexpected conflict that David resolves in a rather, un, uh, rather surprising way. It takes a turn we might not be expecting. It leads us to wonder whether he did was right or wrong. And keep in mind that we need to remain focused on what God is doing through the characters rather than focusing on the characters themselves. Now, three levels of narrative. I've drawn a picture on the board. Um, Maybe this will help you um, get a little bit of an understanding of how we're thinking. It's important to keep in mind that the Old Testament story is being told on three differing levels. Okay? The top or third level, okay, my uneven little half moon, is, is a third level. All right, this is telling the overarching story of the whole Bible. There is one story. It's the revelation of God from a garden to a city. How will God reconcile he and man together again because of sin? It's called the meta narrative. It's how this story fits into the overarching story of the Bible. How does this passage show us the power of sin, man's need of a redeemer, God's character in providing hope and salvation to sinful people? We call this top level often the story of redemption or redemptive history. Um, You'll hear me connecting to that often, right? How, How does this connect to Christian scripture? The second level focuses on what's happening to the nation of Israel at the time. So as we think about the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel, God's made promises to his people. We're recording or reading their history. So what is God doing in the second level for Israel first? All right? And then the first level, at the ground level, it focuses on what's happening to the characters in this particular uh, piece of history. This is where we spend most of our time in a sermon explaining what is taking place. Now, the justification for thinking through these different levels, especially that third level, comes in different places in the New Testament. Jesus says in John 5, 39, the scriptures testify about me. Now, we don't want to press details too far in the Old Testament, forcing Jesus into the text or grasping at this or that and say, well, that must be about Jesus somehow. That's not helpful. Um, If you can't see a helpful theme that you say, oh, I see how that would connect to Jesus or Jesus will fulfill this. Think about David being an example of who Christ would be and a greater David, we're told he is in the New Testament, right? God's going to make a covenant with David that will show us something about the Christ to come. That's super exciting when we connect the scriptures in this way. 
But in doing this, as we believe what Jesus said, that the scriptures testify about him, we see that Jesus is the ultimate answer, both to Israel's needs and to ours. That's where we get great encouragement from stories about people who we know very little about. And if on the surface we're honest with ourselves, we may not care that much about, other than this is an exciting story or not. We saw in 1 Samuel that God wants to provide for his people a faithful prophet, a faithful priest, a faithful king, one who will do all God's will faithfully, not failing his people or his God, who knows God's mind. As great as David is, even in 1 Samuel, we saw him make mistakes. And the answer in the study is not be like David. Maybe we can make an application like that, but it's to look at who your God is, who works and enables unfaithful, weak people. Recognizing the failures of these men leads us to put our hope in our God. It makes us long for a God who is faithful to love and provide for stubborn, sinful men and women like us. It leads us to worship for his grace, his wisdom, his love, even his righteous judgment. And First and Second Samuel ultimately reveal that even the best of men cannot fulfill God's purposes to provide the perfect king. We need a perfect leader. Now, what narratives are not, and this is where we find some corrective thoughts. First, Old Testament narratives are not allegorical stories with hidden meanings. And if you turn the picture just the right way and refocus your eyes, you find some magical meaning. That's not how they work. We should try to read the narratives seeking to understand the specific meaning of the text. Always begin by considering the meanings these texts had for their original hearers. These were compiled together for Israel first. What did God have in mind for them to learn, right? What was he teaching them? We should then keep asking ourselves, why did the narrator include that detail? That's been one of the most helpful pieces that as you develop that skill, you start to see where he's leading you. You want to follow the narrator. He will tell you what the point is if you pay attention to the details. All right? Why does he include that? In 1 Samuel, why did the narrator mention Eli's blindness at several points? Why does he include that? Was it just to highlight his physical condition? Or do those details affirm his character flaws as well? What supports that understanding from the text when we look at it carefully? Second, individual Old Testament narratives are not intended to teach moral lessons. Often you'll hear people say, what we can learn from this story is that we're not to do or to say like that character did. It's not usually where we're supposed to go. Unless the narrator makes that point, then we should be really careful of making that point ourselves. Again, thinking of these passages as sermons helps us understand that God is illustrating what he's like and how he provides for his people in unexpected ways. Think back through that story of David and Goliath. How often have you heard someone encourage you to face your giants in this life like David faced his giants? Is it supposed to be this allegory connection? Face your giants. Have the courage of David. It sounds good. 
That even might be easy for the preacher to preach. But is that what the passage is about? The focus is not on David. There's no way. There's no way. And the point of the text, the narrator is making this point. There's no way David could have or should have defeated Goliath. It's not David's victory. It's God's. It's not because David's courageous. God is defending his honor through a trusting, humble servant. And that speaks so much louder than be a strong and courageous person and fight your giants. That's really important. We're not to read Old Testament narratives and seek to emulate the characters. That's not why they're there. Third, though Old Testament stories do not necessarily teach doctrine, they often illustrate what is taught explicitly or categorically elsewhere. Let me illustrate what I mean again. When I first came to chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, I wondered, as a pastor who's preaching this passage, what do I do with the fact that Elkanah has two wives? That's not good. But there's no explicit condemnation from the narrator for that obvious wrong choice in his life. You know what? When we get to 2 Samuel, there's no explicit condemnation of David's sin with Bathsheba either. Now we see the consequences and all of that played out and David judged, but it's not spelled out the way we might do that ourselves. In 1 Samuel 1, Elkanah is presented by the narrator as a godly character in the story. Even though 1 Samuel does not directly address bigamy or polygamy, we have several passages in the Bible that do make that clear. The Bible tells us what God expects within a marriage. Therefore, when we went through that passage, I referred back to Genesis 2, which clearly states God's standard and illustrated the turmoil in this family because they sinned in this way. Israel would have had that law when they got this book. So even they would have known those commands, that pattern. And yet God glorifies himself in spite of Elkanah's sinful choices. I want to talk through the characteristics of Hebrew narrative and focus on how these parts work together. The narrator. It's very important to keep in mind that the narrator has carefully selected information for the reader to know in order to make his point. Follow the narrator. Follow the narrator. The narrator never tells us every detail of the story, nor does he often comment, explain, or evaluate everything that happens in the story. He chooses details on purpose, and we're supposed to pay special attention to those details. The narrator will lead us to the point of the passage. Think of it, when you think of a story, this is how literature like this works. The narrator has an omniscient point of view from the vantage point of the story. He knows what's going to happen. He knows how it'll turn out, but he's writing the story, bringing you along in just the right way. He knows what's going to happen, and he's directing us to see and hear what he wants us to see and hear. And the ultimate narrator of every Old Testament story is the Spirit. So we ask again and again when we read Old Testament narrative, why did he include that detail? Why did he only include a couple of that character's comments here? Obviously, people say a lot of things, but he only recorded this. Think of that especially when he records something that no human overheard. How did the Holy Spirit, why did the narrator include that? 
As we go, the narratives that make up 2 Samuel be constantly on the lookout for how the inspired narrator reveals his point of view from which we understand that story. All right, next, the scene. Almost every one of the narratives are moved along in scenes. Think of this like a movie. They start in a house and they'll go back to whatever, the police precinct or whatever, the forest or, or whatever is happening in the movie. It starts in one room and moves to another as the viewer interacts with the character. Paying attention to the scene that the narrator has chosen to highlight helps us, again, understand the point of the passage. It leads us. Why is he leading us from one scene to the next? What are the scenes? What do they have to do with one another? How are they related? Next, the characters. In a story, the characters are the absolutely central element. We should also note that in Hebrew narratives, characterization, what we're told about the characters, has very little to do with physical appearance. So much so that if the narrator tells you something about how they looked, you need to be asking why. What does that tell me about his internal character? For instance, what we're told in 1 Samuel, what are we told about Samuel's appearance? Why were we told that David's brothers were tall? And David was small and ruddy. That doesn't mean handsome. This isn't what Israel was expecting. It wasn't what Samuel was expecting. Remember, he goes through each of the brothers and he says, surely this has got to be the one. And out of that lesson comes that famous statement. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That's the point. So the reason that we're given the details about how they looked is to help make that point. Think about how that contrasts with what we are told about Saul's appearance. If anyone was to be a king in how they looked, in their bearing, in their manner, it was Saul. He caught your eye as to what a king should look like from a human perspective. That point is made exquisitely. Man looks on the outward, but God cares about our heart. We learn what God values in a leader. And that's very different from what we tend to value. So what should that lead us to do? Trust him to help guide us in those decisions. The primary way to understand whether a character is righteous or wicked is to pay attention to what the characters do and say. The narrator's descriptions may or may not immediately give that away. You have to pay careful attention. Next, the dialogue. Dialogue is also a vital part of the story. Here again, the narrator very intentionally chooses what to include, what to exclude. We should pay attention to what the characters say, why their words are included. Ask why. Why do I need to know that he said this? Often the very first point of dialogue, the first thing that a character speaks is a significant clue, both to the plot and the character of the speaker. Do you remember Hannah's first words? They were her vow to God, to give her son back to him if he would bless her with a child. They're highly significant indicators of what we learned about her exemplary character. Also, the narrator will emphasize a very crucial part of the story by having one of the characters repeat or summarize the narrative in a speech. Look at what they say. Plot. Every story has a plot. A structure of how things move. There's a setting. They move into some kind of conflict with the characters. That conflict rises. It's resolved. And then you're given a new setting. It's helpful in narrative to pay attention to how the plot is functioning. Often the plot moves very quickly. It's taken in fast-forwarded scenes and then stops and then fast-forward again and then stops. It slows down in making its point. 
jumps from one scene or a specific point to another. The narrator's controlling that tempo on purpose. The last thing is structure. The way a structure, a story is structured is also very important to understanding its point. There are several ways that an author can use that structure or he can use tools to highlight what his point is in the structure. I'll highlight just two. We want to pay attention to repetition, repeated words. I hope you're hearing that as we talk about Bible study. Repetition is really, really important. Whatever genre we're in or type of scripture we're in, repetition is a key tool that the author uses to point out what's important. Another means to understand the focus of the story is to pay close attention to what happens at the beginning and at the end. This is called inclusion or bookends, or you could think of it as a top and a tail. So for instance, in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we have bookends. The bookends are Hannah's prayer in 1st Samuel 2 and David's speech at the end of 2nd Samuel. They're meant to reinforce the main truths presented in the book. They stand there at the ends telling us the themes that we're supposed to be seeing. And the lessons will mainly come out of those. You saw those illustrated in that first video. Now, I want to help you, uh, give you a tool that has been helpful to me. This is something that we've talked about uh, for the pastors, if I don't bonk my head too many times, at Simeon Trust. And what we do, I just went over this with uh, college students, so it's a repeat lesson for them. Um, We start here, and we want to very carefully work toward understanding what the text is teaching us, all right? What we tend to do when we read our Bibles is think God's word is meant to be a blessing to me, right? It changes my life. We believe that. What we're not so good at is how it's supposed to change my life. What tends to happen is I take the text and I run from the text to me right now. And if I do that with Old Testament narrative, I'm going to come up with some really interesting thoughts, right? And that's not good. And it betrays something about us, right? The Bible is called the revelation of God, not the life help book for Jim. It's meant to reveal God. Now, the way to get there and get to faithful application is I have to consider what the author was writing for the original audience. If I never consider them, I'm going to make some pretty crazy application ideas. One well-known pastor and trainer of pastors wrote, there's more heresy in application than in any other part of the sermon. Why? Because if we don't do this well, we're going to think, I'm the center of the story. i got to come up with some nugget of truth to put in my pocket. That's not how the Bible is supposed to work. What is this saying to them then? Then in the Old Testament, we especially, especially want to get here. All right? This is not just the cross alone, but it's theological reflection. What is this passage teaching me about God? The beautiful thing as we work through 1 Samuel that I heard from you over and over again is, I don't remember this from Sunday school. This this seems like new to me. But all we were doing is following this pathway to say, what is this passage ultimately highlighting about God? Right? It is not a self-help manual. It's not Dr. Phil in a book. It's not supposed to be that. 
we behold him and then become like him. We want to worship in every passage we study. And if you follow this pathway carefully, you will worship and you will find helpful, very clear application. Now, it may not mean every time that you walk away with something in your pocket that you're supposed to do. That's not the only type of application. It may be something you're supposed to understand better or believe more fully or desire differently or something to do. One of the things that we say over and over as a slogan in how to faithfully understand the Bible is the long way around is the safest way home. You get the passage and understand what the Holy Spirit intended to teach us when we follow the right pathway. So, Fee and Stewart in their book provide a similar caution for readers of Old Testament narrative. They write, It is our conviction that the primary reason Christians have often read the Old Testament narrative so poorly, finding things that are not really there, is the tendency to flatten everything because they assume that everything God has said in his word is thereby a direct word to them. Thus, they wrongly expect that the, everything in the Bible applies directly as instruction for their own individual lives. The Bible contains all that a believer really needs in terms of guidance from God for living. But this does not mean that each individual narrative is somehow to be understood as a direct word from God for each of us separately or as teaching us moral lessons by the character's examples. It's not that simple. You can't just go text to us now. There's no, no giants to throw rocks at. You've got to do better than that. Right? In your study. Therefore, they conclude, do not be a monkey see, monkey do reader. No Bible narrative was written specifically about you. It will be a benefit to you as you move along this pathway, as you see God for who he is, as you better understand what's happening. Why is he telling them this? Where is God in the text? Now what is this teaching me? A good example would be how believers sometimes draw, try to draw out principles of finding God's will from the story of Gideon and his fleeces of faithlessness. That's not telling us how to find God's will. The most important point to keep in mind as you read Old Testament stories is the presence of God in the narrative. Ask yourself again and again, what is God doing in this story? What's he doing right here for David? What's he doing for Israel? What's he doing in history over time? What is God up to? Why is he doing that? What does he want his people to learn? What does he want me to learn about him and the way that he works in his people's lives? Make this your bedrock conclusion when you read Old Testament narrative. God is the ultimate character, the supreme hero of every story that will protect you from making conclusions that you probably should not be making. Pay attention to what God is doing through the characters, how he's guiding and directing them. And again, this is what was most encouraging to me from our study together of 1 Samuel. That's where I was encouraged each week as I'd study through the text and say, where's, where's God at work here? And would present that to you. I've been so encouraged and challenged, rebuked and comforted by God's work in the lives of his people, even in subtle ways that the narrator would point out, in expected ways, in very explicit ways at times. And it's been encouraging to hear how many of you are making those same type of observations as we learn to read the Bible better. 
These narratives mean so much more when we pay attention to how God is at work in the lives of his people's joys and sorrows. The blessing of obedience, the consequences for disobedience. We will maybe, maybe, I'm not promising, continue that title pattern of highlighting what God is doing. The God who, and we'll fill in the blank. Second Samuel is very different from First Samuel. First Samuel is telling all about the buildup in that story. Second Samuel is a lot of bloodshed. You'll be like, is this the same book? It is. Um, it's, it's a wonderful book where we, where we will continue to see God at work and highlight his character. Hannah's prayer and David's praise later in 2 Samuel 22 is the lens through which we read this story, this book. There we see that there is none holy, there's none unique, there's none supreme like our God. The principles for interpreting Old Testament narratives are given there for you. I want to show you a quick, this video is a little shorter. Um, It will conclude our time. I'll, I'll let you see 2 Samuel. I'll pray and we'll be dismissed.